This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, I want to read you a piece uh, out of the uh, Financial Post. And the headline is, Ontario Electricity Has Never Been Cheaper, But Still... Uh, or sorry, Ontario Electricity Has Never Been Cheaper, But Bills Have Never Been Higher. Uh, this, of course, has been penned by Dr. Ross McKittrick. He is a professor of economics and CBE fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. And I'll read you just the first couple of paragraphs of this article. It says, you may be surprised to learn that electricity is now cheaper to generate in Ontario than it has been for decades. The wholesale price, called the Hourly Ontario Electricity Price, or HOEP, is used to bounce around between, or used to bounce around between 5 and 8% per kilowatt hour, but over the last decade, thanks in large part to shale gas revolution, it has trended down to below three cents and on a typical day is now as low as two cents per kilowatt hour. Good news, right? It would be, except that this is Ontario. A hidden tax on Ontario electricity has pushed the actual purchase price in the opposite direction to the highest it has ever been. The tax called the Global Adjustment, or GA, is levied on electricity purchases to cover a massive provincial slush fund for green energy, conservation programs, nuclear plant repairs, and other central planning boondoggles as these spending commitments soar. So does the GA. And the sad part is, as we conserve more, it also expands the GA. Again, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Ross McKittrick is with us uh, with the University of Guelph and on the line with us now. Good afternoon, Ross. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Is there anything new here, Ross? Is this just the same old, same old over and over again, or is there new information here? (laughs) No, actually, it is the same old, same old. I think I and a few other people have been writing about these issues for a few years. Uh, I think uh, it's important to keep getting the word out so people understand what's happening to electricity prices, but this is a system that was put in place a long time ago. Uh, The government was warned at the time that this could go badly, and it has. And um, what people may not realize, though, because you don't see the global adjustment on your power bill, is that these skyrocketing rates aren't there because it's gotten more expensive to generate electricity. It's, It's gotten cheaper to generate electricity the skyrocketing rates are there because of this surcharge that's used to cover a lot of programs that have turned out to be ruinously expensive. So why does it seem that Ontario is being lured into this? Oh, uh, well... Why, uh, why, why do we stand back and say, it's okay? Yeah, you know... I. Uh, maybe it's because people don't understand what's happened. I mean, people may just assume that this is like oil prices, for instance. Gasoline, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. Not not much you can do about it. But in that case, there's a market. Uh, Oil is sometimes uh, more expensive to extract, and sometimes it gets cheaper depending on supply and demand. But this isn't due to supply and demand. This is a, a policy system that was put in place. See, we don't, we're paying a lot more, but we don't get more electricity. We're getting the same or less amount of electricity than we ever did. Uh, it's just the policy that's in place makes the system more expensive. And um, so I suspect people just uh, haven't yet really uh, taken into account in their thinking about this that these huge cost increases weren't necessary. They were decisions made at the government level and um, they don't reflect the actual cost of, of producing the electricity. What about the ongoing argument we hear about, you know, saving the planet for our grandkids, and, and, and why shouldn't we be financing renewable industry uh, industries uh, in, in order to provide a future, an economic future as well as an environmental future? Yeah, so that's always been the big argument from the, the province, that we had to close the coal-fired power plants to reduce air pollution and so on and so forth. Okay, if you take that goal as given, that you want to reduce air pollution, we could have gotten exactly the same reductions in air pollution with much cheaper methods. Um, the coal-fired power plants were never that big a deal in terms of our air pollution. They, uh, the Environment Canada data showed they contributed 1% or 2% of our annual particulate emissions in the province. And we could have just continued. Uh, there was a, a partially completed retrofit that was putting state-of-the-art pollution control systems on those plants that would have ended up making them as clean as natural gas plants to operate. And the province 
instead of just carrying on with that at a fairly small expenditure, they, they decided instead to mothball the plants altogether. So we went uh, to, to get what turned out to be extremely small reductions in air pollution, almost too small to measure. Um, we spent way too much. Uh, we could have done the same thing at a much lower cost. And bear in mind, we have very good air quality in Ontario. I mean, we don't really have... This isn't like Victorian London or anything. We don't have really heavy air pollution all the time. We have quite good air quality, even in our cities. What about, we, what about Ross, the, the argument that, you know, we've had less smog days this summer and, and that's been trending downward since we closed these plants? Oh, it, it had been trending downward for a long time before that. If, if, now, one thing to bear in mind is we didn't have the smog alert system when you were growing up. So people think, gee, I never had smog alerts when I was growing up, and we have them occasionally now. If we had our current smog alert system when you were growing up, mm. we would have had smog alerts all year round. Yeah. People would realize that uh, the improvements in air quality began in the 80s and 90s, and that trend was happening a long time before. Um, but it does go to the point that um, we have very good air quality in the province of Ontario. We, we do meet our targets, by and large. Occasionally, there's a smog episode, which is often uh, triggered by weather conditions as much as anything. But you also have to ask, okay, even if we got a, a reduction, a small reduction in particulate emissions uh, from closing the coal-fired power plants, what did we have to spend, and could we have got the same benefit some other way at a much lower cost? And the answer to that is yes, we could have. So are you saying, Ross, that if we had just continued with the retrofitting of uh, pollution control devices, for lack of a better phrase, on these plants, that we'd still be in the same position today with the less smog days and the air quality would be the same? Yep. That was, uh, there was a lengthy engineering report done for the province back in 2005 that crunched the numbers and said they'd have eliminated 75 to 95% of the pollution emissions by completing the retrofit and doing air quality simulations that would have turned out to give you the same air quality throughout most of the province as if you closed the plants altogether. So, um, like I say, at a very small cost to finish installing the scrubbers, they could have got the same reduction in pollution at a fraction of the cost, and we wouldn't be having these big jumps in the global adjustment each month. Uh, there certainly is an anti-coal movement, especially in other countries uh, and even south of the border. So why do this? It looks good? It's good politics? Good for votes? Um, yeah, I remember when, when the discussions first started. It was a big in- deal. I mean, when they said they were going to close these, I mean, environmentalists were standing up and applauding. Yeah, and there weren't many of us who were looking critically at the numbers and saying that you don't have to do this. If that's your goal, there's a cheaper way of doing this. Unfortunately, the province decided I don't. it wasn't really, in the end, on rational grounds. I think it was ideological grounds, and, and they just staked out a position that they wanted to pursue. But uh, we're paying the price for that now. Uh, it was not a, a, a good decision. And in other countries, like Germany, for instance, talked about getting rid of coal a long time ago, but they've gone the other direction. They're adding to their coal-fired power plant capacity, and England still uses coal. And, of course, China uh, builds uh, at least 100 new coal-fired power plants a year. And um, That, that figure it, seems almost unbelievable, Ross, that they're yeah. building 100 every year. Oh, yeah. I, I don't have the number at the tip of my fingers. I'm sure yeah. I'm underestimating it. Yeah. Um, but they're developing. Same with India. I mean, coal does provide a good, inexpensive, stable, so, uh, secure source of electricity. If you build wind turbines like we do, it's a very uneven uh, power supply. It goes up when the wind blows and goes down, and you can't really count on it when you need it, and it's extremely expensive. So for all the money we've spent on wind energy, we still don't actually get a whole lot of electricity from it. We rely on nuclear, hydro, and natural gas primarily. Uh, and, and, and most of that uh, nuclear, which I, think, I don't think a lot of people in Ontario realize as well. Uh, why, are we, why are big polluters like China, uh, who are, as you said, putting more than 100 coal-fired power plants online every year, are they using these scrubbers? Are they, you know, because we certainly know what the weather or what the smog conditions are like over there. And, you know, using that comparison, most Ontarians would say, well, I don't want to live like that. Right. They don't use. Uh, pollution control systems, no. 
Um, even when they have them installed, uh, one of the problems they have is that the plant managers will switch them off to save money. But um, for the most part, no, their their fleet of coal-fired power plants is uh, is very primitive compared to ours, and they don't typically have pollution control devices. So they have very serious air quality problems in, in their big cities, and it wouldn't cost them very much to clean it up, but it's being a, a communist government, they don't make decisions based on what the public wants. Hmm. Uh, so is all of what we've been going through in Ontario, is this good for the planet or is this just good for government coffers? Why are they doing this? Why, you know, I mean, nobody's happy about their electricity bill and this could be what eventually brings this government down. So is this just, are they just using green as a way to raise money? Um, well, the, I don't think the government profits. There's a handful of companies that have made out like bandits from all of this, and, and um, maybe they're um, rewarding the government with, with uh, donations to the re-election campaign. But this is not a good way of managing our environmental goals, that's for sure. We have paid way too much. And in the end, if you were to try to measure what we accomplished, given the fact that you have to, we had to add natural gas plants to take uh, some of the the load away from coal, um, it really comes out of wash. We didn't really improve air quality for all the amount that we've spent. So um, uh, why did they do it? Uh, it was never clear to me why they were going to do it in the first place. Like I say, it, it wasn't a rational decision. I think there was a whole lot of green ideology that just caused them to stop listening to any of the people that were trying to uh, get them to compare the costs and benefits. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Ross. Uh, what about you know funding renewable uh, and financing renewable industries? You know, I mean, the, these are obviously going to be growing industries. Isn't this the future? Why not? Why not finance these industries? Well, any industry that only exists because you're giving it subsidies isn't sustainable. Yeah, good point. And what we've seen around the world, uh, a big examples in the U.S., for instance, as soon as the subsidy programs disappear, the plants close. And we will see that here. Um, the, the, um, they had hopes that we would have all kinds of factories making wind turbine blades and exporting them around the world. That hasn't happened. We do have plants that uh, put together and install solar panels in the province for people who are signing up for the feed-in tariff program. But that demand wasn't there prior to the Green Energy Act, and it only exists because of these financial flows, the subsidies that are created under the Green Energy Act. What it, it means in the end, it costs us more, uh, the extra taxes, extra fees that everybody's paying uh, to, to cover these losses, um, that, has the, uh, that has a job-killing effect throughout the province. And that job-killing effect is larger than the small job creation effects that happen because you've got a few subsidy-dependent businesses opening up. We, we've just had a news story on uh, earlier this week about uh, a local business here that's having a hard time keeping uh, the doors open simply because of the cost of electricity, a local grocery store. Uh, where does this go? Can another government change this now, or is it too late? No, another government could. Uh, I know that's, that's the discussion, and I did a study with Tom Adams uh, last year for the Fraser Institute where we put out some proposals. A, a government would have to be prepared, though, to undo some of the major policy decisions that have led us to this point. But yes, we we could um, get out of this, but I think of the starting point would have to be a, a, a clear discussion with the public to say, look, this is what you've been told, but this is what the reality is. We have overpaid for these tiny little environmental benefits, and there was a lot of false propaganda uh, about why we were doing this, and we're going to have to unravel some of these changes, and um, uh, you're going to see your power bills go, go down, and, and you're not going to see the kind of environmental Armageddon that some people might be warning about. But, um, it, it's just not going to work that way. Where will the unraveling leave us? Will some say that as is all stepping ba- uh, backwards, we could have started something here, and instead we gave up too early? Um, well, on the economic side, you know, if people say, if we just stick with it, then we'll have this great industry in Ontario building solar panels and wind turbine blades. Well, Europe tried that 15 years ago. They uh, they started pumping vast subsidies in Germany and Spain and, and England and Denmark. Um, 
they put tens of billions of dollars every year into exactly the same theory, that if they're first, the industries will locate there, start um, building these systems and exporting them around the world. But the problem is the demand for these systems isn't there because nobody can run them at a profit. Nobody can. Nobody would be building wind turbines as a profitable business if it weren't for all the subsidies. And so the problem, again, is once the subsidy programs end, the industries disappear. And so it's inevitable that we will see the end of the renewable sector, unless there's some big technology change. That's what I was just about to say, Ross. I mean, the more we do this, are we not going to get better at it? I mean, we see wind farms now out in the middle of nowhere that are certainly changing, uh, you know, the landscape of, of rural Ontario. Uh, you know, will we not find a way, a better way for those to generate electricity 10 years from now? Maybe we will. And then 10 years from now, if, if, for instance, if 10 years from now, someone invents a solar panel that you can build and install, hook up to the grid and actually make a profit in the open market for electricity, then that would be great. And we will see an industry form around that. Uh, same with wind turbines. If somebody could come up with a, a way of doing it so that it's profitable, so you can you can build them and, and locate them in a, a place that's not going to disturb the neighbors and actually compete on the open market and make a profit, then that would be great. And we would see an industry develop around that. We're just not there at this point. And but isn't this, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate, Ross, isn't this going to get us there? Is this better, not, is this better than doing nothing? No, it, it won't get us there, first of all, because we're building the current generation wind turbines. We're right. not... Uh, building some magical next-generation ones. I mean, those ones obviously don't exist, or we'd be building them. But um, as I say, with Europe, I mean, it was the same promise that, well, if you just subsidize us for 10 years, then after 10 years, we'll be profitable, and, and we'll, you won't need to subsidize us anymore. But that didn't happen. They got to the end of the programs. Uh, they ended the programs, and the companies all disappeared. Same thing happens in the U.S. Um, in, in some of the southern states like Texas that have been trying wind power for a long, long time. When the programs end, the companies aren't profitable and they disappear. So there's no reason to think that it, we've got some magical pixie dust that's going to make our experience any different. Like I say, if there's a technological breakthrough anywhere in the world uh, and we can profit from it and exploit it here, then that'll happen and there won't be any need for the government to be running these programs. Good point. Dr. Ross McKintrick has been with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce and Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. The uh, headline for his column in the Financial Post, Ontario electricity has never been cheaper, but bills have never been higher. Ross, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we seem to be fighting so much over the last couple of years over teachers. We're, we seem to be unaware, or it certainly doesn't seem to be getting the coverage, the issue that our doctors are going through. And I think I started to notice this on a personal level. I got a great doctor, and uh, she's been our family doctor for our family for, for several years now. And, you know, is always very diligent and, uh, and pretty hard on you, if you know what I mean. She's like, uh, she, she takes care of us. So all of a sudden, when I try to book a, and this started a couple of years ago, I started to book my annual physical because that's what they preach to us, preventative medicine. Well, no, you don't need one. Well, what do you mean I don't need one? I'm supposed to get one every year. Well, you know, it really can be stretched out to 18 months or every 24 months because you're a reasonably healthy guy. Well, I'm a reasonably healthy guy because I believe in preventive medicine, like getting my annual checkup. So that's when I first started to realize that something's going on here. And when I talked to my family doctor about it, I certainly got a little different take than what we're hearing on the news. Uh, to talk more about this, the group uh, Concerned Ontario Doctors are arguing that uh, the Ontario Medical Association has been trying to railroad members into a current four-year deal. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Nadia Alam is with us from Concerned uh, Ontario Doctors and on the line with us now. Good afternoon, doctor. How are you today? Good afternoon, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thanks for taking the time. Tell us about Concerned Ontario Doctors. What is this all about? So Concerned Ontario Doctors started back in October 2015, um, and it started with frontline doctors who began to realize that uh, the government had taken unilateral action. So they'd imposed an arbitrary contract 
um, on physicians, and they were basically cutting physicians. And as they cut more and more physician services, we started seeing more and more of our colleagues struggling to keep their clinics open. We started seeing them uh, firing staff. We started seeing them reducing services. We started seeing them reducing hours of operation. And when all else failed, we started seeing them close their clinics. And that began to worry us because nobody seemed to be talking about it. So we, it's just thousands of physicians on a Facebook forum who started talking about the cuts and the effects they were having. And from that, we began speaking out because we realized this is a huge issue. This isn't a doctor income issue. This is a patient care issue. Why aren't we talking about this? Why does this seem to go unnoticed? You know what? To be honest, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's because the system, the healthcare system as it is, has over the past five, six years been seeing cut after cut that people have become used to waiting, right? Mm. Like this whole wait list problem, it's not one, first of all, it's not a sexy topic at all, right? Nobody really wants to talk about it because they feel like they're whining. But it's a huge issue that affects almost every patient who tries to use the system out there. The fact that they can't get a family doctor, the fact that they can't get to see their specialists in good time, the fact that they can't get their imaging in good time, and good times, like uh, what defines a good time, what defines a medically acceptable time, is not what's happening right now. So as an example, Scott, if you hurt your knee and you try physiotherapy and nothing's helping, it's still hurting, you're not able to move very well, you are supposed to be able to get an MRI for your knee within two to four weeks. When was the last time that happened? Hmm. Last time I tried to get an MRI for my patient with a knee, it took me three months. And I live in an area where I've got access to quite a bit of healthcare resources. I live in Georgetown, which is surrounded by Brampton, Guelph, Mississauga, Milton, Oakville. I've got lots of resources nearby, and I'm having trouble. Uh, do you think it's because, and, and, and this being why this isn't resonating more, do you think people just, you know, presume that all doctors make a great deal of money? I mean, we've certainly heard the premier saying how much each doctor makes, um, but are we all aware of what that money gets used for? That's not salary. No, and it's totally not. It's certainly frustrating that the government is putting out this spin saying that the average physician makes such and such an amount of money and, and they're making it sound like it's take-home pay. Yeah. When I actually earn the money that I do, I use a significant portion of it to put towards the clinic that I use to serve my patients with, right? So the chairs that they sit on, the computers that I use, you gotta pay, you got, medical you, records. you got to pay rent. Exactly. And hydro bills, right? Everything's going up. The cost of maintaining that clinic is going up. And in the meantime, the, the money that I earn taking care of patients, because I don't earn money any other way, right? So the money that I earn taking care of patients, that's getting cut bit by bit. In the last year alone, my business revenue, so my business of medicine revenue, dropped by 30%. That's huge compared mm-hmm. to other years. And while I have a bit of a cushion in terms of keeping my clinic going, that cushion's becoming more and more flat. I'm I'm running out of room to accept any further cuts. And some doctors who uh, doctors who earn less are running out of room faster. Doctors who have more overhead to pay, they're running out faster. Like for example, the Barry Endoscopy Clinic, they're closing their doors after years of serving the town of Barry. They're closing their doors because they they cannot pay the overhead anymore. Hmm. Uh, not to compare apples to oranges, but it seems that the government has no te- has no uh, no uh, not a hard time rallying support around teachers. Why aren't we looking at doctors the same way we're looking at teachers? And and you know they seem to hold up our lives, and and we all get stuck in this gridlock of of their deals and what have you, and then end up paying through the nose. Why don't we have that same sympathy for our doctors? I think. Part of it has to do with how well teachers advocate for themselves. Yeah. They, they, are, they are like nurses. They're really good at pointing out when the government starts screwing up. I find doctors, they, they try to play nice. They try and stay quiet. They try and move through proper channels to fix things. And when the government slaps them on the wrist and says, whoa, be quiet. You know, we're, you're a public servant. Your job is to take care of patients. Why are you complaining? A lot of us tend to back down. Learning how to be an advocate against the 
against the cuts to health care has been a steep learning curve for most of us. You know, I, I mentioned just prior to bringing you on about, you know, I got a great doctor, but is is not encouraging me to get an annual physical, which drives me absolutely nuts. It, it, this is all related, is it not? Part of it is. Part of it is that um, some of the changes that you're seeing in the kind of care you can get are based on evidence. So those are the ones that your doctors will recommend. Mm-hmm. And she will say that for people, she I'm not sure if it's a she or a he. So. She. She. So she will say things like, you know, because you're uh, you're a healthy person, you've got you're at risk risk for various illnesses. You can do your maintenance checks through your annual physical right. every so often. Some people need more care. The problem becomes when the government starts to do that on the basis of money, on the basis of meeting an artificial budget, and that's what we're seeing in the wider healthcare system as well as in physician services. The government wants a particular budget. They they don't care whether something is uh, is t- whether a physician can provide timely, accessible care according to medical standards. They just want to squeeze us into that particular budget. So the doctors are now accusing the OMA of pressing members to vote for the deal. Uh, talk about that and this deal and it, good, bad. How how do the majority feel? So it's a, a, the deal was announced on July 11th. A lot of physicians, like pretty much every physician across Ontario, except for the ones who were negotiating, were taken by surprise. They didn't even realize that negotiations were occurring. So a lot of physicians are frustrated that news of the deal hit the media in a joint Ministry of Health and OMA press release before it was revealed to members. So that already set things up in a, for frustration with the way the OMA has handled things. Now, the OMA has been aggressively endorsing this deal. They've been pushing the yes vote, basically. They've been sending out emails on a nearly daily basis, sometimes multiple emails in one day, talking about how we should vote yes. And the frustrating part has been anybody who reads the deal can see it's all smoke and mirrors. So it's why does the OMA support this? Why are they pressuring doctors to, to, to say yes? That's the million-dollar question. I have no idea why the OMA is supporting it, but supporting it, they are. They've even resorted to robocalls and hiring a PR company to help get out the yes vote. And this is what physicians have been told from board members, that the OMA has gone ahead and done this and has approached this kind of like a political campaign. I, I don't like to think of my association as politicians. They're supposed to be doctors. They should have talked to us doctor to doctor about this contract. And instead, they're doing this aggressive advertising campaign about it. That was, my next, that was my next question. Whose side is the OMA on? I hope they're on the side of physicians. I know that um, members of Concerned Ontario Doctors, as well as members of various OMA sections, as well as other physician advocacy groups, have banded together to try and get the OMA to be more transparent, to at least try and um, discuss the contract fairly. So talking about the pros and cons of the contract. Um, We've we've tried to force transparency and uh, a fair process to this whole dealing. So we've not succeeded very well. We found it very, they've set up significant roadblocks to it. We've even had to go to court to get the judge to mandate that the OMA improve its voting process. The judge outright called their tactics sneaky and biased and unfair. It was, we felt crazy for feeling that way, but when the judge actually validated it, it, it helped. It helped to realize that we weren't being paranoid. Do we're do- actually seeing things as they were. Do ha- do doctors have any recourse with the OMA? I mean, is there any way they can they can make their points known and, and try to to change their opinions? So initially, doctors wrote tons of emails and letters and and made calls to the OMA executive, the OMA negotiations committee, the OMA board members. Um, when that failed, we banded together and went to court. And what we've been able to produce, and this is kind of cool. It seems odd that you're going to court, though, against your own association. I know, it's crazy. It's crazy that we've got this internecine warfare going on, but this is important. 
I, I don't want to fight my representative organization, but this is so important. This contract is so terrible that just yesterday an economist released an analysis and said that if doctors agree to this contract, they're setting themselves up for about $1 to $2 billion of cuts over the next four years. That's about an average of thirty to $70,000 per doctor. Uh, We've already lost a billion in last year. It's to do more, I don't know that there is that much more room to cut physicians. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, doctor. Yeah. Uh, is there any way the OMA could be looking at this uh, as a neutral body between the government and the doctors and saying, you know what, we're in a crisis situation here. This is what has to be done at this point. I think that doctor and government can work together to find and eliminate waste in the system. The problem with this contract is that aside from doing that, which is a laudable goal, getting rid of waste is always a good idea. I don't feel convinced that the government holds up its end of the deal, but that aside, getting rid of waste and cleaning house on your own is always a good thing. But this contract basically sets doctors up to subsidize the cost of healthcare. So if there's a SARS outbreak, if there's uh, an influx of refugees or immigrants, um, if we have a whole bunch of new doctors setting up practice, if we have inflation, doctors have to foot the bill. And while doctors can do so to a certain degree, like they did back in 2012, at this point, we've been cut so much that we don't have that cushion anymore. It's now it's actually affecting our ability to keep our clinic doors open. And if I can't keep my clinic open, how am I going to take care of my patients? My clinic exists solely to serve my patients. That's the only reason I have it. Do you think there still is waste in the system, doctor? I don't know that there's that much waste in the physician services budget anymore. I think we, the OMA worked with the government to take out about um, half a billion to a billion dollars worth of waste from the physician services budget back in 2012. We were cut in 2013, 2014. Last year, they took out a billion dollars worth of um, physician services from the budget. None of those have been returned, right? So those are all permanent cuts. I don't know if there's actually room for more efficiency. I, I don't know how to make the system any leaner than it already is. What I do think is there's waste in the healthcare system. We know this because Canada has, or Ontario has, some of the highest number of middle management in the in the medical system, and no one is clear what some of this middle management does. Like for example, the local health integration networks. Most doctors have no clue what they do. The auditor general last year in the fall slammed them for being a waste of money. Um, and yet they exist. And in fact, the government is giving them, is increasing their number. It, it boggles the mind. What will the future... to help our budget. What will the future of practices look like? Or, or what will practices look like in the future? I mean, the old days, it was a single doctor. You go in and you visited him and, you know, he was your family or she was your family doctor. And that was that. If you went to a specialist, they would send you to one or such. Now we walk into clinics where... Uh, you know, you, you will see your family doctor, but you may also have uh, uh, blood services there where they'll, you know, do uh, lab work and, and this sort of thing. Maybe other sorts of fine, uh, forms of medicine, whether it's, uh, you know, a chiropractic doctor there or, or, or something of that nature. What is the future of this going to look like? Because it seemed that that, that sort of clinic was the future and, and now we don't seem to be able to afford it. No, we certainly can't afford it because a lot of those clinics were paid for by doctors. So those clinics where you could get on-site blood testing done, those clinics where you could see a nurse or um, some of the other allied health professionals, a lot of those clinics were paid for by doctors. Some of them were subsidized by uh, the government, and those are called family health teams. Now, the government last year restricted the number of people who could enter who could work in family health teams. Why so, would you do that if that was the future? I have no idea. Again, the government just wants to fit everything into an artificial budget. They're not really looking at what patients need. They're looking at what they can afford. And that's the wrong way to approach the healthcare system. 
we have to have a conversation across the province on what patients want from their healthcare system, what patients need from their healthcare system, because currently the healthcare system isn't really matching need at all, um, and what the government can afford and what doctors and nurses and allied health providers can can give to match need with resources. Are we kidding ourselves to think we can still afford uh, afford public paid health care? Some days I think yes. And I think more and more doctors are beginning to wonder, ask themselves the same question. We, we all love Medicare, but it's hard to continue loving it when you see it failing patients on an almost daily basis. I mean, look at the stem cell transplant disaster. That should never have happened. That is life-threatening or life-saving therapy for a curable cancer that patients cannot access because they're sitting, dying on wait lists. And that's just because the system is so underfunded. It all has to do with funding the system. Now, before going to alternate models of care, like some European countries have done, I think the big thing is we need to get rid of the waste in the system. The physicians have done that over the last few years, but I want to see the government do that too. I want them to look critically at the middle management that's currently bloating healthcare and say, do we really need this position? Do we, can we put this money towards more frontline care? Can we put this towards the services patients actually need and get value from? Once we've gotten rid of the system, then yeah, we can look at it and say, can we actually afford universal health care anymore? Or should we actually look at the hybrid models uh, like in Europe? Or even some that they're trying out in Saskatchewan, which is not even that far away. If people want to find... If, sorry, go ahead. No, no. What I was going to say is the big thing is the way medicine and physicians... Uh, the way medical care provided by physicians, is the way it's going to look like in the future really depends on what happens with this contract. We're going to be voting on it on Sunday. Um, and physicians, are some of them are sending in online proxy votes right now. We'll have to see if this deal is accepted. I have a feeling what it's going to do is gut physician services for the next four years. And that's, I don't think we'll be able to recover from that because that's on top of what we've already done. If so people want All the cuts we've already had. If people want to find out more, doctor, where can we go? So they can go to votenopsa.com or they can go to carenotcuts slash ivotenow. Both of those websites will give them lots of information on why this contract is not, is not the, it's not what it's being sold as. It's not a raise. It's not going to improve physician services. What it is going to set us up for is providing less and less service over the next four years. Dr. Nadia Alam has been with us, Concerned Ontario Doctors, the group Concerned Ontario Doctors, arguing that the OMA has been trying to railroad members into this current four-year deal. Doctor, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Scott, thank you so much for having me on the show. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked about this yesterday and dipped a little bit into this. Tim Hudak uh, leaving politics uh, at the end of uh, the summer, end of September, and going to be leading the Ontario Real Estate Association. How will he be remembered? What will be his legacy? Robert McDermott is with his associate professor in the Department of Political Science at York University, and he is with us now. Hello, Robert. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate this. Uh, surprised that Tim Hudak has decided to step down? No, I'm not, I'm not really surprised, and I, I imagine most people aren't. I mean, leaders, defeated leaders, tend not to hang around. Um, even Mr. Harper, who actually hasn't said he's going to resign yet, has, has there's been a number of stories saying he, he's about to resign. So it's pretty unusual when a leader... Uh, gets defeated in an election, um, uh, that they actually hang around for any length of time. Because you can imagine it's quite a different job being on the back benches than being on the front benches. Was his political career pretty much over since losing two times? Well, I think in terms of advancement, I, I mean, it's incredibly unlikely that he would ever go back to being the leader. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to say never, but, you know, <laughs> I don't think there's any record in Ontario of people reclaiming a leadership that they that, that they had previously lost. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I think he was then condemned to be uh, a backbencher, maybe a cabinet minister if the progressive conservatives won office. There certainly is lots of precedents for that at different levels. But, um, 
you know, I think he probably thought it was time to go off and do something else. You got to remember, he he was first elected at the age of 27. Yeah, he started very uh, young, didn't he? Uh, yeah, in 1995 with the Harris sweep that defeated that defeated Bob Ray. You know, he had very little experience. I think he worked for Walmart actually for a brief period of time. He had a master's degree in economics, and then he, you know, kind of got in on the coattails, if you want, of a Harris sweep, which often happens with MPs. They decide they're going to run. They don't necessarily have a lot of experience. And then the dislike of the Ray government, you know, helped him get elected. Um, so, uh, you know, he hasn't had a lot of life experience, perhaps, outside of being an elected person. And he's been also there for, I think it's 21 years, right? So um, that's, that's quite a long career in elected office, uh, I can imagine. And, you know, often people will then want to go off and do something else and, and try to try to take that experience that they've got in government and translate it into maybe a better wage packet, you know, outside that. And he's gone off to work for the Ontario Real Estate Association, so uh, which, you know, further underscores that relationship between politics and real estate that, that tends to be there in municipal government and Ontario government as well. How will his past uh, experience help him there? Well, I mean, he's got a lot of connections, uh, you know, both at the local level and at the uh, provincial level, and he can help represent uh, open doors for the real estate agent, uh, real estate agents. He, he, of course, knows people in the Conservative Party. We know from looking at uh, money uh, uh, that's given to parties to support them that the real estate industry is a huge supporter of provincial politics and provincial parties. Um, and he'll certainly be get an entree into that. You know, he'll be able to say to real real estate developers that, oh, I know so and so, they're having a fundraiser. Why don't you be a, purchase a ticket? We can introduce you to you know, such and such a serving politician or somebody in government who's a public servant who, you know, that will allow those people to express their views about how policy should change. So well, I think he'll be very useful. How did he become leader? He obviously wasn't everyone's first choice. Uh, no, I mean, you know, after uh, the defeat of the Harris-Eves government in 2003, um, the Conservatives looked kind of dead. Dalton McGinty was in ascendance, uh, and, and he ran... Uh, uh, well, first of all, there, uh, there was John Tory, who was elected subsequently to that, and then when Tory failed miserably in the 2007 election, partly over funding of religious education, if you remember. Um, Hudak was there along with some other people, and I think together they weren't the strongest group of leadership candidates. But he defeated Frank Cleese and Christine Elliott, uh, the spouse of Jim Flaherty, the federal finance minister, now deceased, uh, who also ran against uh, Patrick Brown and was defeated by him as well. So, you know, there wasn't a, a really, really strong set of candidates there. Um, they were all kind of ex, uh, not all ex-Harris uh, cabinet ministers, cabinet ministers, but some of them were. Uh, and he managed to capture the right wing of the Conservative Party. I mean, the Conservative Party continues to be split between a hard kind of pro-market, hard right wing uh, view, and then a kind of red Tory or social conservative or, or a view that, that the, 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 the welfare state should somehow be protected to some extent. And the party continues to be split along those lines, just as it was federally and now as it is uh, as it is provincially as well, and he very much represented the, the pro-market side. In fact, when you look at his ideas, uh, y- you can trace them all back to Harris. Uh, I mean, so many of the policy ideas he put forward in the elections of uh, 2011 and then 2014 were almost directly out of the common-sense revolution. I mean, he always talked about downsizing government, and if you remember, in 2014, he promised to fire 100,000 public servant. Is that what did him in, Robert? It seems at that point a lot of people just said, holy smokes, this is going to help. This certainly isn't going to help. Is that that sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for him? I think that was part of it. I think it was also a question of how he relates to the public. You know, he wasn't, he never seemed to be comfortable in front of the camera. He's never, never seemed to be someone who, like, say, Justin Trudeau or even Kathleen Wynne, who seemed to be able to forge a relationship with, with people. I think, uh, Hudak never seemed that comfortable in his own skin as the leader. And that's a really, really important quality, to be able to connect with people. And then these, that, that statement, which seemed kind of hair-raising, and then also the promise at the same election that they would create a million jobs. Well, you know, uh, provincial governments don't have a lot of control of the economy. And, and to make a promise like that, well, journalists just devoured it, you know, we're, we're obviously cr- incredibly un- unbelievable 
unbelieving in the fact that uh, that he could actually do that. But you know, he was, there were also other things too. You know, he always talked about selling off the LCBO and the OLG, the the Ontario Lottery and Gaming uh, Commission. He talked about tax reductions, which is right out of the Harris playbook. Um, he in 2011 he talked about using provincial inmates to work uh, cleaning the streets. Yeah, the Another chain gangs. That, that yeah. Harris had talked about. So, how will he be remembered? What will be his legacy, I, Robert? Yeah, I, I think you know because he was never in government. Um, he doesn't have a really a legislative legacy yeah, to look that's... back on and say, oh, you know, he changed this in our laws and made us behave differently. He doesn't have that. Um, so I think he'll he'll just be seen as as uh, uh, a leader who was elected but didn't really advance the party to government and, and wasn't successful. It did briefly increase the number of seats, but then lost some seats in 2014. So uh, and didn't really heal the party. So I, I think he remains a part of this division, this story of division in the Progressive Conservative Party, and he couldn't couldn't surmount that. Uh, you know, we're still waiting to see if Patrick Brown can heal that difference between the two sides and bring some bring the party back to power. You bring up Patrick Brown. Similarities, differences between he and Hudak. Well, I mean, in in many policy ways, you know, if you look at some of the statements that Brown made in the federal uh, parliament, they're very similar to Hudak. But since he's taken over. You know, he seemed very, uh, very conciliatory and has, uh, you know, criticized Hudak's promise of the, of the job cut of, of 100,000 jobs in 2014. And he's, he's quietened down his views on social conservative issues like abortion and so on, and seems to be trying to bring the party into a more central position and maybe shed some of the uh, anti-union, anti-human rights, anti, uh, uh, you know, anti-immigrant, a number of ideas that I think cling to the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario. And so he, he's trying to move the party to the center. Uh, and I think that's what Hudak couldn't do or wouldn't do or didn't believe was sensible to do. Is he a comfortable PC? Is he warming? Will he warm the party up? Um, I think he's certainly trying to do that. Uh, he needs to be seen more. I think a lot of people have not really formed an impression of him um, because there isn't a lot of media scrutiny of him at, at you know, at since he, he since he's been elected, I think it'll take some time. I I wonder if he's got the same problem that Hudak has, and that he's not really quite as comfortable in front of the camera, and quite as maybe quite as comfortable with people. Uh, but that will turn. You know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens there. I mean, obviously, politicians learn a lot when they become leaders. They 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 do go and take their media courses and learn how to how to interact with the media in a more uh, friendly and and um, you know, attractive way, and I think we'll see how he manages to adapt to that. And plus, dealing with the party itself. I mean, it's a party of of a number of you know mavericks, strong believers, and and you've got to kind of weld them together into one view. And you know, I think the jury's still out on whether he'll be successful on that. Uh, election still a ways away. Uh, we've had a long run for the Liberals. Uh, can is this the leader that can turn the party uh, around and take and certainly mount a, a substantial a, a substantial challenge against the liberals or will this be another win by default right I, well i mean you know partly it depends on whether the government shoots itself in the foot which it seems to have been pretty good at doing you know on and off with various scandals and you know often people throw the government out rather than elect right. the government in uh, and, you know, the number of scandals and issues that have surrounded the Liberal Party certainly give Patrick Brown a strong tailwind, you know. That being said, court. that being said, Robert, lots said that about the last election and, yes. uh, and Hudak. It was his to lose. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. No, I mean, you know, then it depends on the, the policies they come up with, whether they can form something that's attractive to voters instead of something that repels voters, which is, you know, was true in... 2014 and also in 2007 on the on the funding uh, separate school or funding um, other educational other sort of religious group education so I mean it really depends on what they put together um, and you know he's got still two years to go um, and and you know is this I, the era I'm, I'm not an I'm not in the business of giving odds yeah. <laughs> two years down the road. Is this the era of the feel-good leader, Robert? Uh, it seems uh, with Harper's Conservatives, it was sort of a cold and, 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 and not very welcoming environment. We see what happened in that election with Justin Trudeau and how he spun that around. Uh, same thing with the PCs in Ontario. Uh, mm. Is this going to be something that's going to take a long time to correct? 
Um, no, I mean, I, you know, I think politicians can learn quite quickly. I mean, look at Justin Trudeau. I mean, you know, if we'd had this conversation two years ago, the chances are that, you know, we would have been talking about his same lack of ability to relate to people and, you know, talking about things like his boxing match as, you know, as a failed attempt to connect with voters. Um, so I think, I think parties can turn these things around. They can get on the right side of issues. They can assure publics that, you know, they have a policy to address their concerns. And then, of course, sitting governments, as I say, can make a lot of mistakes um, in execution, in policy ideas, um, and how they spin them. Uh, it can all, always, you know, undermine where they're going, what their support is as well. So I wouldn't, you know, I certainly wouldn't write the Conservatives off. I, I think there's a continuing base of people uh, that you know the federal conservatives have shown is, is around you know a third of the electorate to to four four to forty percent of the electorate say thirty three to forty percent uh, that continue to believe strongly in those kind of pro market ideas that government should shrink and that the market should be the way that we purchase the things that we need and that governments can't be trusted to allocate those things efficiently. Um, you know, to the extent that they can convince people of that, uh, I think they'll have some success. On the other hand, you know, when you're pro-market, you're also uh, anti, anti-labor often. And, and, you know, labor unions have been suffering very severely. Uh, you know, young people have been experiencing the labor, the insecurity of the labor market. Um, and I'm not sure that everyone thinks that, that uh, the, the right-wing solutions that Patrick Brown might put forward are likely to be solutions for their problems. As you mentioned earlier, it wasn't that long ago when Lotz considered and questioned Trudeau's uh, capability of of holding the position. I remember some poli-sci professors calling him vacuous. Has that critique changed? (laughs) I didn't say he was vacuous. I didn't say you Um, did. I said I've had other poli-sci guys that have. I, I think it has changed. I mean, I think he's obviously grown. Um, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that he hasn't uh, understood and learned a lot about the job and, and certainly how to put his ideas over, how to relate to voters. I mean, he has that magical quality that his father had in how he relates to voters, uh, at least early on, you know, when, when in, in, in his father's uh, reign. He had the same sort of quality. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. Uh, later on, but at this point, you know, he's learned a lot. He he's he's understood that he needs to talk to people, that he needs to compromise, and that's a very important political uh, skill: is recognizing that you know if you're going to get somewhere, you may have to take half a loaf. And uh, you know, he's I think he's understood that um, that that's that's needed, and and the public face of that is really important. And he's he's done that part extremely well, probably far better than any critic would have thought two years. You know, two years back, it, it's certainly uh, been great branding for Canada, hasn't it? It has. It's it's really raised the profile and you know shown a youthful leadership around the world. Um, but you know, that's just an image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when what happens in the G seven when they really do sit down behind doors? Does he get excluded, or do they, is he really part of the power play? You know. Um, so I mean, we shouldn't be fooled by the fact that that's just the image, the the sort of the uh, the fake cardboard front. Uh, What goes on behind is really the important thing. Robert McDermott has been with us, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at York University, talking about Tim Hudak stepping down yesterday and then slowly moving over to Trudeau. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Okay. Nice to chat with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.